thinking seven generations down the line instead of only um, our current needs and desires and wants helps to ensure that all of the part, these different parts of the natural world will be there when the gen other generations are born. Um, and so this is called Sigorite, and it was actually one of the last holdout places before my ancestors were pulled from here and pulled into the mission system as slaves. Hello there, you're listening to Earth Matters, produced in the studios of 3CR in Melbourne and broadcast on the community radio network around Australia. We're bringing you environmental and social justice stories. I'm Jem Rommeld. On this week's show, we're speaking to two inspiring Native American women about the battles for environmental justice on their land. We speak with Karina Gould, a Chechenyo Kakin Olone woman who has dedicated her life to protecting and preserving sacred sites. The interview was recorded at Segorate, a sacred site in Vallejo, just an hour out of San Francisco, California. Karina tells us about the blockade camp that ran for over 100 days and which successfully stopped a waterfront development at a very important burial site in 2011. First, we'll speak with Lynn Jacobs, who is a Mohawk woman living at Gunawage, a Mohawk reservation near Montreal City in Quebec, Canada. She is spearheading a project for a community-owned and run wind farm to provide economic and energy autonomy for the people of Gunawage. The project is working through the approvals process right now and facing some challenges, which she'll tell us about. The interview was recorded at her home in April 2015. My name is Lynn Goyat Anuas Jacobs, and I'm from the Mohawk community of Gunawage. And can you um, tell us what Gunawage is? Gunawage is a Mohawk community, and it's one of um, seven Mohawk communities which are located uh, in what is currently known as uh, the province of Quebec and Ontario in Canada and in uh, northern New York State, the United States. And have you grown up here? I grew up here. My father is Mohawk and my mother is uh, Canadian. The community seems to be very... Um, connected and very very active on various things and um, I've heard one of your projects is to start um, some, a wind farm to generate electricity. Can you tell us a bit about that? Well the project uh, actually uh, began, the idea of the project began in 2003. We were looking to possibly host a wind energy project here in our own community. Um, we did some studies uh, of the wind, and unfortunately the wind resources here, as, as well as other constraints, uh, wouldn't allow us to have a feasible project here. The pro and so we started looking elsewhere, and we found a site uh, in a nearby community, a non-native community, um, where um, the wind is much more favorable and the site as well is, is, is very favorable because most of the access roads are already present on the site um, and there will be minimal um, environmental impacts. Mm -hmm. So we started um, looking at the project there because it aligns not only with our traditional values of uh, planning for the seventh generation, and um, but also um, looking at economic development that is sustainable for our community. And what do you mean by planning for the seventh generation? Um, well, um, we have 
in our language, we have uh, some, it's kind of like a Thanksgiving address. It's called the Ohandukari Wadekwa, and it means the words that come before all else. And those words are, are words that our children, we, we, we speak those words in our schools, in our homes, before meetings, so our children learn them at a very young age to think about all the different things in the natural world that we must consider um, in our decision making. And thinking seven generations down the line instead of only um, our current needs and desires and wants helps to ensure that all of the part, these different parts of the natural world will be there when the gen- other generations are born. Mm-hmm. And how far away is the, the site that you've found that seems to be quite suitable? It's about, it's about 20 minutes uh, away from our community. Um, and it's in, like I said, it's in a non-native um, community. And um, we've had challenges with the project. Um, there's a, a growing anti-wind energy movement that is happening um, in that particular region. And so we've had some challenges um, with people protesting the project and the development of the project and of wind energy in general in the region. Mm. And do you think some of that protest is specifically to do with wind energy or is it also because it's coming from a Mohawk community? Is is that element part of it as well? There's a mixture. Um, I know some of the concerns are related to impacts on agriculture. However, the project, once it it's the site is restored after construction, less than one hectare of land will be put out of agriculture production. So in that respect, the project is actually quite, quite positive and the farmers will receive compensation. They're in support of the project the farmers whose land it would go on and they could actually make improvements to their farms from the revenue they'll get from the project. So in that respect, the project can actually contribute to the agricultural productivity of the region. Mm. Some of the other issues um, that um, we're facing are related to the energy surplus that exists right now in the province of Quebec mm. um, and increasing electricity bills and et cetera, which are being blamed on on wind energy so mm. so those are some of the issues and then of course there's the added um, issue of the relationship that we have with our neighbors um, it hasn't always been a positive relationship um, we've had you know different challenges around uh, indigenous rights and Mohawk rights that have created tensions with our neighbors so in that respect we've have we have um, additional challenges with the um, with the local population. Mm. And do you know where mm. the electricity currently supplied comes from? Most of the electricity, actually, in fact, all of the electricity currently in the province of Quebec comes from hydroelectric uh, large-scale dams mm-hmm. with a, a growing amount coming from wind energy. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, we have several very large dams in the northern part of Quebec, and these dams in the past have have, um, you know, displaced the indigenous populations in the northern part of the province and also flooded vast areas of land and caused, you know, irreparable damage to some of the um, the caribou uh, migration routes and other wildlife, etc. So those have had significant impacts in the northern parts. Although, you know, the, 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 the energy is considered a, a green energy um 
you know, we're trying to avoid additional dams being built and those mega impacts um, from occurring. So, and in Quebec, we had, we used to have a nuclear power plant called Gentilly 2, and it was uh, several years ago. Uh, we were very glad um, that they were, it was shut down instead of, there was consideration for it to be refurbished, but it was actually shut down. So we were very, very happy about that. So right now the energy mix in the province is um, hydroelectric and wind. Mm. And within Ganawagi, is there generally support for this project or is it a real, real mixture? And, and how do you go about, um, I guess, working with the, with the community here? Um, for the most part, there's support for the project. Um, we haven't had uh, many people who came out and, and had any kind of problem or concerns with the project. Um, I think the one concern that uh, a certain group had was related to the opposition that exists in the in the community where the project is going to go. Um, but for the most part, the community is very strongly in favor of the project because of the the environmental benefits and the economic benefits that the community will see our our economy um you know is suffering our we we rely on a a lot of uh, funding from the government which is being cut um over and over and over every year and um our our, our mohawk council uh can go into deficit very within the next few years so so this project will really help the community uh, through fund, to help fund our, our services, our infrastructure, our community programs, our, and, and, and go back to reinvest in the economic development of our community. So mm. I think in that respect, there's a lot of, uh, a lot of support because this is uh, something that's very much needed and, and it's in a way that is um, a green energy, something uh, that's sustainable. Well, we have a, a website. Um, it's www.ksenergies with an S. dot ca. Um, the the com- the uh, company is called Gunawage Sustainable Energies, and it's a uh, it's a public company. It belongs to our Economic Development Commission and our Mohawk Council. And uh, basically, like I mentioned, the funds will be going to the community as a whole it's not a private company so if if you want more information you could look at our website at www.ksenergies.ca great thank you so much lynn thank you very much that was lynn jacobs a mohawk woman from the gunawage community in quebec canada You're listening to Earth Matters, produced on Wurundjeri land in the studios of 3CR Radio and broadcast all across these stolen lands we call Australia on the Community Radio Network. Let's hear now from Karina Gould, a Chochenyo Kakin Olone woman, about her work protecting sacred sites and keeping culture alive. She spoke to Earth Matters at Sagorite, the sacred site that was rescued from the concrete pourer by a powerful community blockade of over three months in 2011. Karina and her work features in a new documentary called Beyond Recognition, produced by Michelle Grace Steinberg. Let's hear some audio from the trailer, which you can watch at allthews.beyondrecognitionfilm.com. 
look at the Bay Area, it's always home. And when I say home, that means I was originally planted there. My ancestors have been there since the beginning of time. So I'm always home. So that's a blessing. But it's a double-edged sword. This other piece of me has to deal with seeing bulldozers pulling up street and not knowing if my ancestors are going to be there as well. And knowing that all the 425-plus burial sites of my ancestors have been destroyed because of development. When you look at this shell mound, which is the oldest one, it's covered completely by asphalt. My name is Karina Gould. I'm Chochenyo and Karkina Loni. I've been working on sacred sites protection and preservation for the last 20 years of my life. They destroyed a mound that was over three stories high. Indian People Organizing for Change is a community organizing group that Karina and I started in 1999. In the beginning, it was really about teaching ourselves to stand up and make some changes in our community. And so what we're trying to do now is create a land trust, a space where Ohlone people can come together, revitalize language and song and dance and ceremony, and talk about looking at the Bay Area in a different way, doing what our ancestors taught us to do, to take care of the land. And how do we do that with cities brought up all around us? It's about the survival of our culture and who we are. In every other way, we have been erased. This generation has to make that leap in order for us to survive. Yeah, so on April 11, 2011, we put a call out and had people meet us here and um, decided we weren't going to allow the bulldozers and stuff to come in. And Fred Short was one of those people. He's an elder Ojibwe man who is the um, spiritual leader for the American Indian Movement in Northern California. And he set up a sacred fire there where the parking lot is now. And we had that fire going for 109 days. And so we, 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 we just took over the place. We thought for sure that we were going to get arrested, and we never did. We definitely had Homeland Security here having conversations with us, having conversations with the city and the uh, state. We were on the phone to the attorney general and a bunch of different folks like that. But um, folks kept coming. And we had one meeting, and they told us that we needed to take our fire and put it outside the gate at night. And then we can bring it back in the morning. And I was like, what the hell? So you tell the Catholic Church when they close their doors at night, they move their altar. And then when they in the morning, they can move it back. So, no, we're not going to do that. We had people that set up tents, like, immediately. So families showed up here with kids and stuff like that. And they said, well, you need to take down your, your tents. People can't be there. So we actually complied with that because we thought we were going to have some conversation. So... Um, we were all supposed to sign an agreement about how we were going to deal with this. And so families took down their tents and they stayed in their cars out there on the street. And, um, and they, never signed the assi they never signed an agreement with us. Took, it was like we waited about a week 
And so we told people to go ahead and put their tents back up. We set up a teepee, that flipping lot, people lost their mind. We had all kinds of news mm -hmm. and media out here. They stayed the night with us, waiting for something to happen. Um, and then it was, uh, and then it was just kind of a standstill. It was like, what are we going to do? How are we going to, how are we going to deal with this? So we had folks, we had young people that were here that were in charge of security. So we had people that were staying out here. So Chris Oaks actually slept out here. This was his kind of post. He slept here. Um, he did a lot of night, and so he would stay here. So there, there was young people from all over the place that, actually, there were native people and non-native people that stayed here, and we had people that came in and they, um, we set up the. Uh, kitchen that was there people brought tarps and they brought food and they brought tables a, uh, and they brought wood. Wood yeah people brought wood from all over the place so the fire kept going we had people from all over there was four different places in the world in different parts of the world that actually set up fires to burn as long as ours did um, and so we had support from all over the world from people saying that they believed in what we were doing and standing up for um, protecting this site um, so on day 99, I think it was around day 99, 98 or 99, um, the city of Vallejo and the federally recognized tribe and uh, the Greater Vallejo Recreation District um, had a meeting without us organizing here. And they decided that they were going to create something called a cultural easement. And what a cultural easement does is it allows all parties to have equal access and equal rights to the land. So the federally recognized tribe, whose land this is not, paid $30,000 to create this, this um, cultural easement. It's the first one in the country that's between a park district, a tribe, and a city. Um, so no, no development could happen on here without everybody's okay. So according to that, uh, that agreement, they were not supposed, they're not supposed to put any like pipes through here, none of that kind of stuff. They're not supposed to develop anything, anything big. People were freaked out there, you know, about Indians put a casino here on the waterfront and what that was going to be like. And, um, and it really was just about protecting the burial sites that were, that already existed here and about keeping the land open. Um, because of, uh, our tribe is non-federally recognized. They, United States government doesn't recognize us as Indian. So there's over 425 of these shell mounds, and that's how I met Marcus, because um, he came on our first walk and second walk and fourth walk. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And we walked to the different shell mounds, and we started right here um, at this one. Um, and so this is called Segorite, and it was actually one of the last holdout places before my ancestors were pulled from here and pulled into the mission system as slaves. Um, and so we, we decided we were gonna, when we were going to stay here um, to call in all kinds of folks, and folks just started showing up with their bags and with the what can we do and how can we stay here. And we had people that were sick with mental health issues that just needed a place to heal. And so they did. That's what they did. We had a couple of women that did nothing in the camp but was there present at the fire. We had people that came in and they had their own jobs that they figured out, you know. Um, somebody was good at doing composting. That's what they did. And they took on that job. And it just became a way that people just fit in no matter where they come from in the world, that they could find their own place and be here. So there's 425 of these shell mounds in the Bay Area, and basically none of them exist out in open land like this anymore. 
Most of them are under buildings or streets or railroad tracks, bars and schools and all that stuff. When we did those walks, um, we found all of these places that, um, and we prayed to those ancestors. And I really believe that as a result of us doing that hard work for those years that they finally said, okay, take care of this. Because we did it all as grassroots people just because we felt like it was a good thing to do and something that had to happen and bring recognition to the ancestors that remain in the land and those that have been taken out. So a lot of the universities still hold possession of our ancestors. There's 15,000 of them at UC Berkeley where Junsan has drummed for many years in front of there uh, during her fast in October. Um, there's about the same amount in San Francisco State University. And many of the universities in the Bay Area are actually on sacred burial sites, which is really interesting that those are the spaces that these institutions of higher learning have decided to be at, but still do not have an uh, ongoing relationship with the original people of this land. You're listening to Karina Gould, a Chechenyo Kakin Alone woman, speaking at Sogorite, a sacred site that she led a campaign to protect from being turned into a waterfront development. And so for me, it's always hard coming back to see it changed in this kind of way. Um, But to know that it had been changed before and that it's still open here and it's still here for us to use. And so we still come back here once a year and we hold ceremony and we invite people to come and to learn about it and find out what it is and to try to protect these places that are touchstones, not just for Ohlone people, but for people from all over the world. You know, and I think that that's important as we begin to work together to try to figure out this earth and what we've done to, you know, what human beings have done to it. How are these places important for our survival as well? And I think that that's, you know, one of the things that Segura Day taught us was that um, living closer to the land and tied back to the land gives us a way of being human beings again so that we begin to see outside of those structures that have been put on top of us, right? And so that we're able to do that, you know? I mean, I think that that's what the walks do too, is that we're able to see, you know, one of the biggest ways to see something totally different um, is to walk it, right? Because you could drive through someplace day in and day out and not see anything, but when you walk it, it's something different and it changes your life, right? So this is part of that journey of changing our lives is trying to figure out how do we uh, connect back to this land? How do we bring other people to connect? So one of the things that we ha- that happened after 109 days um, and we closed this up and the tribe signed all kinds of crap on their things saying that they were going to get rid of us, you know, that we would leave peacefully. We would not come back. Um, we would not gather more than 10 Indians at a time. We would never bring a big drum here and drum again because we had a big drum and we were drumming all the time, you know. All of these things. They signed that. We didn't sign shit. (laughs) So (laughs) I was like, you guys never came and fucking talked to us. You threw us under the bus numerous times, you know, whatever. Um, So, yeah, so every year we come back and we have a drum and we We have more than 10 people. And we have way more than 10 people. And, you know, we eat and we talk about the land and the stuff. And then a few months after we left, because most of us left here, we had some form of post-traumatic stress disorder, being on edge all the time, not knowing if you were going to get raided, not knowing all of this stuff. Um, 
it was difficult um, going back home. So mm -hmm. I got three kids at home that that I left for the most part while I was here, and um, and things definitely changed the dynamics in my household. And um, and it wasn't just that; it was just like people had a hard time going back into what reality is, right? So going back into forty-hour day, forty-hour job, and going back to school and being able to pick up a book and read it and not. It, it was just really out. It was really weird. So, um, but during that time, I got invited to this this meeting down in Southern California, and there was all these Native folks that were getting together, and or um, because they had created these land trusts, and um, and it was a tool that we could have used if we had it at Segorite. We could have actually been the people that created that cultural easement with the city and the and the uh, park district had we had that and so now that's what my work is doing is trying to figure out how do we create this uh, native land trust in an urban area because there's native land trust in Alaska and in you know different places that people have reservations and they're buying back their land and doing all of that kind of stuff but there's not an urban native women's land trust um, in the country and so we're trying to figure out how to do that right now and so that's what Beyond Recognition is about, is about talking about this place. It's about talking about how do we get to where we're going and how do we try to move forward on that kind of stuff. So, yeah, that's it in a nutshell. <laughs>
We are the spirit of natural life, which is forever. The power of understanding, real connections to spirit, is meaning our resistance, our struggle, is not sacrifice lost. It is natural energy, properly used. One time, I was visiting with my relatives. The clouds, the mountains, the sky, the trees. My relatives touched my spirit, nudged it lovingly. Listen to us, impatient one. We are forever. You must remember the gentleness of time. You are struggling to be who you are. You say you want to learn the old ways. Struggling to learn when all you must do is remember. Remember the people. Remember sky and earth. Remember the people have always struggled to live in harmony, in peace. Struggle against selfishness and weakness so the people may live as nations. The old ways are hard. The people have always had to work together. Remember, impatient one. Remember and live. Do not be afraid of truth. Respect, discipline, share your life so the people may live. Honor sky and earth. Honor yourself. Honor your relations. Remember, impatient one, the gentleness of time. <laughs>